0: When I was a student at Wheaton, I took an Old Testament class one semester and I wrote a paper about the four women that Matthew names in his genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. In the final weeks of the fall semester, I was researching and writing about these women and I was immersed in these heart-wrenching, complicated and beautiful stories. I journeyed with these women through Advent. And every year since then, I have found myself drawn to these women in the weeks leading up to Christmas. So when Nate said that he wanted to focus on these women during the Advent season, I was so excited to get to spend another Advent journeying with these women. What draws me to their stories is how human they are. They are really complicated. They're full of joy, sorrow, hope, loss, injustice, redemption, we meet these women right in the complexities of their lives. These women are the four mothers of Mary. When we see their names together in Jesus' genealogy, we're reminded of the messiness of the world into which Jesus entered. Jesus, God incarnate, God become human was born of Mary into a family with really complicated stories. So as we prepare to welcome Jesus, these women's stories remind us that there is room for all of our messiness, all of our complicated lives. There's room for our hope as well as our pain. There's room for laughter and room for tears. There's room for our deepest desires and our greatest joys. We can bring our whole selves, wherever we are on the journey, to Jesus, God who dwells with us. And today we begin with Tamar. Hers is a story of waiting. But I hope you will also hear in her story how God is faithful and how God redeems. A note as we enter into her story together Her story does deal with some really sensitive things like abuse and death. I'm also mindful that we have younger people listening with us, but I invite you to care for yourself and those you are with as you listen to her story. To set the stage, I'm going to read the first few verses of her story just to help us get an idea of where she is and what's happening in her life. This is from Genesis chapter 38. It says, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man in Aldam called Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It is at Cherub that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his seed on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. This is just the beginning of her story. We find this story in the last section of Genesis, which focuses mostly on Jacob and his sons, the next generation of the promise line that we just read. The last 14 chapters of Genesis focused mostly on Jacob's son, Joseph. You're probably familiar with the story of Joseph, the one who has dreams that one day his brothers will bow down to him and his brothers are so angry they sell him and he ends up in Egypt working for one of Pharaoh's officials. But through God's providence, Joseph's position there ends up saving his family and all of Egypt during a famine. We know that story pretty well. That's a story that we tell often. But in the middle of Joseph's story, we meet another of Jacob's sons. The son through whom the promise line would continue. Judah. Judah is the brother who suggests that they sell Jacob. In chapter 37, it ends with Joseph being sold. And chapter 38 begins with Judah leaving his brothers at that time. And it is there that we meet Tamar. We're gonna look at Tamar's story in three different acts and then we'll reflect on what her story means for us today. So act one, the best of times and the worst of times. That's the section I just read for us. The beginning of the story is one of joy, weddings, children, sons in particular, being born and more weddings, Judah's oldest son, heir is married to a woman named Tamar. Judah's family line will continue. I imagine Judah looking around at his growing family with joy and pride, with hope for the future. But in a flash, these best of times turn to the worst of times. Judah's oldest son, heir, was evil in God's sight, and God put him to death. We're not given any information about what it is that air had done and why it resulted in him dying. But Tamar is left a widow and Judah is left without his firstborn son. Something that's true across all times and places and cultures is that losing the people you love is incredibly hard. But for a woman in her time, For Tamar, this leaves her in an especially vulnerable position. This also leaves Judah with a lineage predicament. The firstborn son was incredibly important in their time. There are a few cultural things we need to know to help us understand exactly what's happening to Tamar in this story. First, a woman grew up under the care and authority of her father until the time when she was married at which time she was past the authority and care of her husband. So Tamar left the care and authority of her father when she married air. When air died, Tamar came under the care and authority of her father-in-law Judah. It was Judah's responsibility to care for Tamar. Second, There's a law that we read about in Deuteronomy 25 that tells us about a law for ensuring the continuation of the family line. I have it up on the screen for you. But the important part of this law is that it was the responsibility of a man's brother to marry the widow. So if a man dies, his brother should marry the widow and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law meaning that the firstborn son of this union would be the rightful heir of the man who had died. So an heir dies, it's his brother Onan's responsibility to marry Tamar. However, Onan uses this arrangement to take advantage of and abuse Tamar instead of redeeming the family line and fulfilling this law when this happens, God takes direct and decisive action against Onan for what he has done to Tamar. Verse 10 of Genesis 38 says, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, according to the same Deuteronomy law, if this son had also died, then the next son should marry the widow. So Judah's youngest son, Shelah, should have married Tamar to fulfill this law. But with two sons having died, Judah fears his youngest son, Shelah, will also die too. It seems like maybe Tamar is the common factor in his son's dying. So instead of Shelah fulfilling this law and, Tamar, and Judah fulfilling his responsibility to Tamar, Judah sends Tamar back to her father's house. To be sent back to her father's house with no husband, with no children, and no longer a virgin was a circumstance of shame, a position, of vulnerability, and a sentence to a life of disenfranchisement. Tamar has no hope and neither does Judah's family line. Act two, trickery to write a wrong, this is where the story continues. After years of waiting in her father's house, waiting for justice to be done, waiting for Judah to honor Tamar's rightful place in the family, Judah has not honored his responsibility to Tamar. So Tamar, who up until this point in the story has been an entirely passive character, she suddenly steps in to action. She disguises herself as a prostitute, deceiving Judah when he sees her on the road. Judah solicits her and she becomes pregnant. You're probably thinking, whoa, what's happening? Explain that again. (laughs) There's a lot happening here, so stick with me. We have to keep in mind a couple of things as we think about this. One, the sexual ethics of this time were very different than our times, and we also have to remember that for a woman, her survival depended on her having a place in her husband's household through bearing children. Because of this, scholars actually praise Tamar for what she's done here, for her cleverness. Some scholars point out that through Tamar's action, she's standing up to Judah's dismissive attitude toward preserving the family line. Old Testament scholar Stephen Dempster, he strikingly credits Tamar as one who believed in the family line more than Judah did. And if it had not been for her ingenuity, the promise would have been lost. In opposition to the actions of one of the great patriarchs himself, Tamar's actions ensure the fulfillment of God's promises. But disguising herself is not the only trick that she plays on Judah. While she's disguised as a prostitute, she asks Judah for an item that identifies himself to assure, ensure that he will pay her. While she is hiding her identity, Judah gives her his seal and staff two items that would identify him like a driver's license would identify us. But later when Judah tries to find her to repay this prostitute, he can't find her because she's changed out of her disguise. The irony of this scene is that Judah doesn't feel a responsibility to honor his commitment to his daughter-in-law, but he feels a responsibility to honor this commitment to the prostitute. However, once he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he wants to take responsibility for her in order to condemn her. In fact, he wants to have her killed for shaming the family. But with Judah's seal and staff in hand, two things that undeniably identify him, Tamar will make Judah take responsibility for what he's done to wrong her and to recognize what she has done to preserve the family line. Act three, righteousness and redemption. As we come to the last part of the story, Judah is ready to condemn his daughter-in-law, but she confronts him with the items that identify him and identify the man by whom she's pregnant. The text says that she sent word to him, meaning that she probably didn't confront him in person. But I still picture this moment of Tamar handing him these items, handing him the seal and the staff and staring him straight in the eyes with confidence, boldly daring him to admit what he's done. When Judah recognizes the staff and seal, the text says, That Judah recognized them and said she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. Judah declares that Tamar is righteous. But is she? After all that she's been through, after all that's transpired, can we really say that Tamar is righteous? Old Testament scholar E. Ann Clements she calls Tamar a practitioner of risky righteousness. I love that description for Tamar because it reminds us of an important point. There's a difference between using trickery and the power available to you to right a wrong than of that to perpetuate a wrong. Tamar uses means that are available to her to right a wrong is at this point that it matters that Tamar's story is found in the middle of the story of Joseph. Tamar's story is a story within a story, meaning what happens in the story of Tamar tells us something that helps us understand the story of Joseph. So if we think back to maybe what we're familiar with about the story of Joseph, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, at Judah's suggestion, but then they take Joseph's coat, the one that he's famous for, the technicolored coat, they cover an animal's blood, and they present it to their father, Jacob, so that he thinks that his son has died by being attacked by an animal. Jacob thinks that his son is dead because this item that identifies Joseph seems to be evidence of what has happened. Do you catch that? Judah is part of a plot to use an item that identifies Joseph to mislead Jacob about who is responsible for what has happened to Joseph. Then Tamar presents Judah with items that identify him and Judah is confronted with taking responsibility for his actions. Tamar confronts wrong and seeks justice in a way that seeks to fulfill God's promises. And because of this, Tamar is righteous. God is faithful to the line of Judah through Tamar's actions. And the end of the story is that Tamar gives birth to twin sons. Tamar's story foreshadows that justice will be done in Joseph's story too. Judy Fentress Williams, she says that the Tamar Judah story alerts the reader to the fact that those things that appear to stand between the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises are illusions. So what do we do with this story, this really complicated story? And what does it mean for us as we enter into the season of Advent. First, if any part of this story resonates with you, if you've ever grieved the loss of a spouse or a child, if you're a victim of abuse, if you've ever longed desperately for a child, if you've ever looked around at your situation and wondered if redemption was possible, the first thing to know is that God sees you and that your story matters to God. Secondly, for all of us, I think Tamar's story teaches us the practice of waiting. Waiting is a practice of remembering that God will be faithful to keep his promises, that redemption will come. This is what the season of Advent is all about. Advent is the season of waiting and longing and expecting the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises. But where is God in this story? Where do we see God in the midst of Tamar waiting? In the entirety of the story of Tamar, we only see God take direct action twice, when he puts heir to death, and when he puts Onan to death. Other than that, we see the movement of God through Tamar's actions. And I think this teaches us something about what it means to wait. Waiting can look like two things. Waiting can look like longing for God to intervene, like how Tamar waits in her father's house for years. But waiting can also look like taking action. Waiting can look like walking in the direction of God's promises and hoping that God will keep his promises. As we read Tamar's story, we see how her story is drawn up into the story of God, a story that points to Jesus, the one in whom redemption comes. In the same way, all of our lives are drawn up into this story. Tamar's story reminds us that all of our lives are stories within a story. As Tamar's story points to how God's promises will be fulfilled in the story of Joseph, her story also points to how God's promises will be fulfilled in the life of Mary through the coming of the Christ child. And so Tamar's story gives us hope that God will keep his promises to us too. The stories of our lives, the messiness, the complexities, our own longings for justice, our waiting for God to answer our prayers, all of that is drawn up into the story of God. And all these stories, all these parts of our lives, wherever we are on this journey of looking for God's redemption, through this we catch glimpses of God's justice his redemption coming in our midst, as we wait for Christ to come again and finally set all things right and make all things new. So as we enter into this season of Advent, as we journey with these women, we remember how Tamar waited for justice. We remember how Mary waited for the Christ child, We remember how we all wait for things in our own lives. We remember how we as a church wait together for the fulfillment of God's promises. Friends, redemption is coming and indeed has already come. God with us, Emmanuel. God remains faithful to keep his promises. Amen.